0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. All 22 species are technically vulnerable or above or threatened with extinction. So yeah.
1: it's... Yeah, no. Yeah. And, and
0: that's- what can they teach us?
1: Researchers in Germany and aerospace engineers uh, that are trying to figure out the nuances of the flight pattern of the albatross and how they go these great distances soaring.
0: Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at AllCreaturesPod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and I'm Angie. I've been bugging you for so long with this species.
1: <laughs> I've been wanting you to do have. this one for a while. I yeah. know. And it's yeah. so funny. Within the first 15 or 20 minutes of doing research, I was like, aha, this is why. This is what I've been missing. And this is why Chris have been pushing albatrosses for mm-hmm. a while. Because yeah. what a cool bird. Holy cow. My gosh, Chris. I I guess I've been living in a cave or something. I knew albatross were amazing seabirds, but I didn't know that they were the largest of the flying birds. And I didn't know about their wingspan. And I didn't know about their long distance. Holy macaroni. That how they fly. Nuts. Oh my gosh. Yes. So <laughs> nuts. They're nuts. it's gonna be an amazing podcast for everyone i think whether you're a bird nerd or just learning about the great albatross so stick with us uh it's just it's going to be a really fun one and hopefully you'll learn a lot
0: now i okay i first have to dedicate this this whole episode to jesse golden down in new zealand because hi jesse yes I definitely
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: yeah Since the beginning of the podcast, he's like, you need to do albatross. And and when I was living in New Zealand, I said, Jesse, we'll do albatross. And here we are, what, two years later.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, some things are worth the wait, I think.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, he just did post. He was down in Dunedin, the South Island, and he did post uh, a picture of an albatross chick on a nest. And he just was like, I've never been more happier than seeing this animal in the wild. So, So congrats to him for seeing that finally.
1: Yeah, which is probably one of the cutest chicks there is. A big, fluffy, big, emphasis on big, fluffy, mm-hmm. uh, down, feathery ball of just gray love for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, something, you, it was funny. You messaged me the other day and you were like, okay, what species? Because apparently there's anywhere from, what, 14 to 23 or 4? There's still a
1: big debate yes, on the number uh, of species. Mm-hmm. It, it's... it's Yeah, we'll be able to talk a lot about that. But yeah, there's a lot of debate. In fact, as far as taxonomy goes, especially in the bird world, I think it's one of the greater debates as far as all the new DNA evidence and just really trying to figure out what are species, what are subspecies, and then, of course, how to classify them because they're really unique birds and their physiology is just incredible and their morphology, right, how they're built is different than other large seabirds. So I think right now, currently, BirdLife International uh, recognizes 22 species of albatross with some of those species having saw su- several subspecies within them but it it, is- it actually by the time this pod airs it could change <laughs> <So>. <laughs> probably
0: <laughs> it's, well IUCN recognizes 22 as well and mm-hmm. I think what's interesting within that and that's why we definitely wanted to cover them during the month of July I mean, it doesn't matter when you're listening to this podcast but during July now with what we've done last year and doing it this year, and we'll do it every year. We're on the, we're pushing episodes out is plastic free July. So this month we are dedicating all of our episodes or we're focused all of our episodes on oceanic species. And definitely as you're going to listen, plastic is a major issue with albatross, but within those 22 species, there are three that are critically endangered, five endangered, seven near threatened, and seven vulnerable. So all 22 species are technically vulnerable or above or threatened with extinction. So it's... Yeah, no. And
1: and that's something else I didn't realize coming into this pod was that this magnificent, great, soaring bird, large, large bird. The videos are just fantastic. I can't wait to talk about their behavior and some of their mating rituals. But yeah, just that each species is threatened or or vulnerable or in critically endangered. And so we'll highlight some of the organizations that are trying to save these guys at the end of the podcast. And and if anyone listening would like to help reduce your plastic consumption, it's not too late. Please join our All Creatures podcast team uh, by going to plastic free dot ecochallenge.org and Chris will put it up on our show notes and it's on all of our social media channels. And yeah, you just search for teams and we have our all creatures pod team and we've got several members uh, throughout the world and different uh, continents even that are joining us to help learn more about how to reduce your plastic consumption. And it's really fun and interactive. We kind of swap stories and and share ideas. And then and every day I have a goal to uh, pick up Litter or cook a, a plastic-free meal. Buy my vegetables without plastic, and just all these other really awesome ways to reduce your plastic footprint. So that's that's my plug for plasticfreeecochallenge.org. So or or make your own team too. So.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's thousands of you out there listening. We know that, so you know. But if you just everybody does their part, and we'll talk more about it at the end of the podcast. But we need to reduce our plastic waste. We have to. We have to. We have to. Our our oceans deserve it and deserve all of our efforts. And then of course, really quick, I just want to thank you to Savannah and Lizzie for joining us on Patreon. And some people may not know what Patreon is. I always post it in our show notes in the link that you can go there and we do some extra content. And it basically, you're, you're helping support the podcast, what we do with our free education, and that we are giving back to organizations each month. So that reminds me, I'm going to put the poll up when we get done recording for this month's organization that we can vote for to send uh, money to. So we've been doing that since the beginning of Patreon. But, you know, basically for a cup of coffee a, a month, that helps us and you support conservation. And I know you have a couple of shout outs.
1: Yes, it has been a good month in July for our iTunes reviews. Because I always say if you can't afford to donate any money right now to Patreon or any of your local wildlife organizations, I totally get it. Times are hard right now. And so we would just appreciate a positive shout out on iTunes. It helps us get more exposure and get more people listening to the podcast and, and thus caring about wildlife conservation. And so just a huge thank you to Leo Moreggi, Set Mia, Wildlife Hero 34, Lions 20, Derpy Llama, and CLG 2019. I <laughs> Derpy Llama, really appreci- I love it.
0: I, know, <laughs> I love it. Derpy Llama, thank you. <laughs>
1: yes, all of them. They were all kind of awesome. words. One of my, uh, Leo Moreggi was like, Keeper chat on steroids. So since I love yeah, yeah. hormones and studied them in uh, grad school, I, I appreciate yeah. that one a lot. But yeah, wonderful words, and it really helps us, like I said, get recognition uh, through Apple's iTunes and get more exposure, which means more people can learn for free. Yay! So thank you.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, no, it helps a lot. So thank you so much, and just you know, for all of you that are sharing these episodes, it helps people learn about these animals and care. You know, especially you know with our oceans and, and the harm that's going on with with And the harm that's going on with the animals there. So really quick before we describe the great albatross or the species of great albatross, because there's even a bunch in there. Angie, I'm going to answer the question towards the end. Is an albatross good or bad luck to a sailor? You know, or there's the old rim of the ancient mariner, a lot of superstitious superstitions with sailors. So, so we will find out because you never know if they're good luck or bad luck.
1: Awesome. All right,
0: so great albatross, the the family, the species, because there's a bunch of little species in there. Generally, these are the biggest of the albatross.
1: And by big, you mean big. (laughs) That's what blew my mind. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So what? The wingspan. This is the biggest wingspan of any species we've covered, right? So the California condor was, do you remember how big it was?
1: I think it was nine foot wingspan.
0: So you're right, 10 feet, 10 feet. Okay, so I 10 feet, it. you're right. So this one's just a little bit bigger at 11 feet, tip to tip. And mm-hmm. But I think still, you know, on average, they're still the 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 biggest birds on the planet, or they're recognized as the largest bird on the planet, alive, right? Yeah. As far as, as wingspan, wingspan, because we've, we've talked about, you know, the ostrich, which we talked about last month, being the largest land bird alive. This is the the biggest wingspan alive, and I mean they can weigh up to twenty-four pounds or eleven kilograms. Well, that's That's pretty. pretty Yeah,
1: that's where I was like, oh my gosh, it's like a small to medium-sized dog or medium-sized dog. I I read up to thirty pounds, depending on the species or ones or the time of year.
0: Yeah, it's a big bird. It's a big bird, and then just (laughs) various colors, right? Yeah, yeah, various colors. You said white, but
1: yeah, yeah, Chris. In general. The plumage or the feathers of most albatrosses are, uh, yeah, Chris, in general, for adult albatross, there are usually some variation of a dark upper wing pattern, whether it's brown or black with white undersides, Hmm. almost like a, a gull or other seabirds that you're familiar of. But for each species, the color patterns are different, or they have different high points. Whether it's eyebrow-looking plumage, or um, a, less of a darker upper wing pattern, or more of it. And so, for instance, I focused a lot on one of the species of the great albatross group, mm-hmm. called the wandering albatross, because mm-hmm. I just loved its name so much. And we'll talk a little bit more when we get to behavior about just how far they wander. It's incredible. Far, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's. Far, uh, they can undertake circumpolar trips. And one banded bird was recorded traveling six thousand kilometers in just twelve days. Wow! So, that's insane. That's yeah,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: but yeah. So the the wandering albatross is just amazing. They're all amazing. Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, yeah. But for instance, these guys are really unique. Where if you look at them from the top side, the top of their wings are mostly black, and then they have a white body, and then completely white undersides. Some of them have a little bit of gray, mixed in light gray feathering in their neck, but primarily white uh, on top and then a little, maybe a little high points of black on their tail feathers. But in most albatross have these beautiful, dark, almost black looking eyes and they have their legs are anywhere from yellow, pink, to grayish in color. And, of course, they have amazingly webbed feet that are, help them when they're in the water. And their bill is quite unique. I have a whole section where I'll talk about their bill. But in general, their bill color can range from almost pink to light pink to yellow, almost whitish in color, depending on the species. In Chris, the shape of the albatross bill is really unique as well as it's pretty long and almost cylinder, if you will, and it really sets them apart. And I have a whole section that we're talking about Bill physiology because it's just so cool. But in general, for the, al- the species of albatross, it can be pink, which is kind of cool uh, in color, or light pink, a yellow, cream-colored. So it just depends on the species. But the bill is really important, obviously, for uh, when they're hunting all of their seafood. So it's a it's a pretty good size bill.
0: It's. I was gonna ask you how to describe that because I
1: couldn't. I was like, <laughs> I don't think I I'm did leaving it that one up to you. Yeah, go to our show it's notes. Unique. Uh, it's very unique. It is, yeah. It's really, it's really quite unique, and I, the, the coloration's pretty. It's really smooth and it's narrow, mm-hmm. but still lar- long. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's definitely different than other other uh, seabirds, which is one of the morphologies that set them apart from auks and other absolutely other seabirds. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're definitely unique. They are. And so the range was interesting, Angie. You know, I, I've thought a lot about this one. In, in the Southern Hemisphere, so around the equator, you don't find them. There is an exception. The waved albatross does go to one of our favorite places on Earth where we just covered the Galapagos. Hawaii. Stars. So they do.
1: Yeah, oh, the Galapagos.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, the Galapagos. We love Hawaii, of course. But in the Southern Hemisphere, yeah, yeah. That's. <laughs> It's, But it's really unique for that. It's the waved albatross to go that far, I guess, north in the southern hemisphere or that
1: close to the equator. equator. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, because I guess the wind patterns around the equator is something I learned this week. The wind isn't as strong, which, you know, in the southern oceans around Antarctica or the northern oceans around the Arctic, you, you see, you know, you imagine stormy seas, lots of wind is what the albatross needs well around the equator they call them the doldrums where there is no wind you know at some point so we're going to talk about them flying later but they don't really have powered flight they glide so Mm -hmm. you find them in the higher latitudes southern hemisphere they go all the way around from australia new zealand across the pacific over to south america and then south uh, up to southern south africa you know, and then the Indian Ocean. So they range all the way there. In the Northern Hemisphere, it's interesting. They do go to Baja, California, which is pretty far south for them, over to Hawaii, across the Pacific, to Asia, and then obviously up to Alaska and Siberia. Don't range in the Arctic. It's, it's too far north for them. But Angie, why in the heck are they not in the, the Atlantic? There are no
1: albatross what? in the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, I found that really interesting. Yeah. I, uh, they said that there were fossils and hints that they may have been at some point in time, but that currently there are not. And it must have something to do with wind patterns or, I mean, I don't know. I'm that's why maybe... that's why albatross researchers yeah. get paid the big bucks and not yeah. us. <laughs> and, and they don't get yeah, paid big I mean... bucks for the record. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. I, I That is really interesting and it doesn't really make, especially considering there's so many species, and they seem really able to adapt mm-hmm. to really unique niches and islands that they breed on. So I don't know.
0: And I mean, I haven't seen anything in the record, or I haven't come across anything that the albatross was hunted by sailors, you know, or anything in the you know the wiped 16, out 17, yeah eighteen hundreds mm-hmm. yeah because that's that's mm-hmm. really when you had a lot of traffic from Europe to the Americas. So I, I, it's a, I'm curious and it would be interesting to anybody out there that would know they can email us all at gmail.com, but it would be cool to, to find out why, you know, maybe I'll pick Jesse's brain say, okay, here's, here's a conundrum for you. I want you to answer this one. Why does albatross not exist in the North Atlantic? That's just, it's just very curious to me. Moving on to why care? I mean, I know they're a phenomenal bird. A top ocean predator, but there are so many reasons to why I care, right? I mean, so many reasons to care about these birds.
1: Oh, yeah. I think the first one that comes to mind is if you are into birds or bird watching, this is a really popular species to watch and enjoy and learn from. And their colonies are popular destinations for ecotourism because there's many trips, bird watching trips that are taken from coastal towns and cities. Uh, and then they travel out to a lot of these nesting colonies that are on islands off of New Zealand or Africa. And in fact, Chris, I was reading that New Zealand alone may attract up to 40,000 visitors annually uh, to check out some of the different colonies around New Zealand, mm-hmm. so that's I mean obviously that's not happening this year, unfortunately, yeah. Uh, right. But due to the due to the pandemic, but yeah, so I mean that that's that's a really important uh, economic driver of a lot of these remote uh, mm-hmm. area regions of the uh, of the world. And Chris, I think another important reason why people should care for them and want to save them is it. We're actually learning a lot about flying from albatross, and so there's researchers in Germany and aerospace engineers uh, that are trying to figure out the nuances of the flight pattern of the albatross and how they go these great distances soaring, riding the currents without ever flapping their wings. And like I said, we'll talk more about that uh, here in a second, but just the fact alone that these brilliant aerospace engineers are looking at this bird to learn more basically how to make drones and unmanned aircraft more efficient. So it's just so cool to me that these birds can potentially help us reduce global climate change by reducing fuel consumption of drones and other aircrafts. So I don't know. I just... I, I Animals with just this incredible physiology, which we've covered so many of them on the podcast, when they can help out with, like, engineering and biotechnology, I just think that that's – I don't know. I just love how we can learn from them. And uh, I think, too, when I get to their mating rituals, uh, uh, people could probably learn <laughs> yeah, a few yeah. things, too, about uh, about their courtship and their parenting, right. their amazing parents and amazing parent investment. And so – but anyways, yeah, they're just, uh, I understand that why bird enthusiasts would want to go see these guys in action. And it's definitely on my bucket list. So Jesse, I'm inviting myself to New Zealand someday, some <laughs> some way, somehow <Yeah. laughs> to come check these Thanks. these albatross out.
0: Next time I'm down there, I've got to go down to the South Island and get and see these. It, it's just a, it is a dream, and I, and I get why Jesse was like, oh my gosh, I've never been happier seeing an animal in the wild than seeing one of them. So, for sure. Oh,
1: I totally get it. Yeah, no, I just got goosebumps. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, it's it's a date. We're all coming. Jesse, make room. <laughs> so.
1: Put the yeah. put the tents out in the front yard. Here we come. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're, uh, they are amazing birds. And like you said, the biomechanics, and we'll talk a little bit later about how they fly. But yeah, we, we're learning a lot, a lot from them that can help us in the future. Now, you know, obviously the oceans, that's the focus this month. And and I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the pressures they're facing, like why all of these species are threatened with extinction. The number one threat to them is this thing called long line fishing, And the way this works is fishermen go out in the ocean. They set up a single line that could be up to 130 kilometers long, which is insane. That is insane with thousands of baited hooks. And they use this in the Southern Ocean, which we talked about. Most of these species live and they use it to get tuna and hokey and snapper and toothfish and and all these different types of fish on these on these long lines now what happens is the albatross will follow these fishing boats and when they throw these baited hooks before they can sink the albatross will go and and try to get the bait and they get tangled or hooked and then the lines sink and the albatross is killed or drowned so once these lines sink under Under the surface, it's not a danger to the birds. But while they're up there, they do affect the birds. So, according to BirdLife International, 300,000 seabirds are killed every year, including 100,000 albatross, which is insane because when Angie gets to the breeding, they only breed like every other year. So, there's not like there's just tons and tons of albatross. And that has led to a lot of these birds. Or the albatross being endangered. Now there are some. There is some good news. Is these fisheries in the An- Antarctica are modifying how they do it, and what they're doing is they're doing things like bird-scaring lines or weighting the lines so they sink quicker. And there have been some data coming out that this has been beneficial. And, and there was actually I think it was uh, the toothfish, the Chilean sea bash fisheries that have used this method. Have had zero seabird bycatch, meaning they 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 killed zero awesome. birds. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So so yeah so that's yeah. good. So,
1: you know. Yeah. Well, Chris, I was reading a statistic that in the past sixty years, it's estimated that we've lost over seventy percent of global seabird populations, and
0: Ugh. I'm glad
1: to hear that there's some positive news coming out, Ugh. and and. I know, and it, it's it's. I don't know. It was just. How do you be it was. Just, I don't know. I don't know. you just okay. like. Oh
0: no, no, It's. I'm glad you're throwing that out there. I guess that just hit me in the gut because I didn't even. I didn't even see that stat. Seventy yeah. percent of seabirds.
1: That's insane. population. Mm-hmm. That's insane. And so, oh. but and and researchers think that a lot of it is because it happens out of out of sight, out of mind because. No most of these birds spend their life at sea that's why they're called seabirds and so it's like a silent extinction right that we don't yeah. we don't see them all the time and they're not one of these big megafauna like rhinos or pandas or mm-hmm. something like that and so because they live their isolated lives at sea and then typically their breeding colony and then typically their breeding colonies are also on remote islands that it's just it's up to these brilliant and amazing conservation heroes and researchers that Mm -hmm. are fighting, fighting hard for them, BirdLife International. And uh, towards the end of the podcast, I'll talk about another group out of New Zealand that is just, I mean, literally like putting their life on the line to like save these birds. And it's really, it is hopeful. And I think it's just really important that we get this information out there, get people excited about seabirds, get people caring about seabirds, even though we don't necessarily see them all the time. Pardon the pun. Uh, We don't see seabirds that often. They're definitely out there. They're doing really cool things. They have amazing just... Just amazing behaviors in uh, physiology. And so they're important to save and they're an important part of the ecosystem. And uh, and and the other thing, too, of course, with wildlife filmmakers from National Geographic and BBC, yeah. we have footage. Like, just go to YouTube and type in albatross and you're going to – your mind will be blown. I probably spent more time watching videos this week than I have in a long time <laughs> in, pre- me too, me too. <laughs> in preparation, in preparation yeah. for this podcast, which – which really shows my dedication to albatross and when I learn about them because I'm with my mom right now and her internet is snail speed or at least it was <laughs> until it got fixed a couple of days ago and yeah. so these videos were like breaking up like halfway through yeah. it but I would keep it downloading it until I could watch the whole yeah. thing just because I was that I was that mesmerized not only by their beauty but just what they do and so there is a lot of information out there uh the albatross is actually very well studied uh, with researchers and wanting to learn more about their f- flight distances and mm-hmm. where they breed and all of that. So we we have a lot of resources to be able to protect them. Now we just need to mm-hmm. implement them, right? Reduce, right. Our, reduce yeah. our plastic and set restrictions on long lining and other bycatch issues that are not only affecting yeah. albatross, but are affecting t- so many uh, sea-dwelling creatures.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, oh, yeah, so here's a film that everybody can go, and I'll link this in the show notes, and it's called Albatross the Film. It's www.albatrossthefilm.com, and there's a documentary filmmaker called Chris Jordan, and he documented, he went out to Midway Island, which, do you remember what species we covered over there? It was not a couple months ago. Which island? Uh, Midway. Out there by Hawaii, hmm. there's the the hint. The hint. Oh,
1: um, art, art, art. I know it's a seal, Hawaiian monk <laughs> yeah. seal.
0: There you go. Okay,
1: amazing vocalization, yeah. though, Chris. You're hired. Yeah, thank you, thank you.
0: Art, art. Okay, so, but <laughs> okay, we did. <laughs> Don't quit mid- your day job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not. Oh my god. Okay. But he went to Midway Island, Angie. And I remember we, we talked about the, the amount of plastic that was washing up there, and, and we were concerned mm-hmm. with the monk seals. Well, he talks about the Lazen albatross and got plastics in the ocean. Again, this is why we the species was so important to cover. The way the Lazen eats or hunts its food is because they go and skim the the surface of the water with their beaks. And when they do that, they pick up plastic. And so he actually right. documents a lot of these albatross that, that wash up dead opens up the stomachs and it's just full of plastic and it just kills them uh, It kills them. And uh, so he's actually documented thousands of dead chicks due to plastic that 97% of the dead chicks that they found had plastic in their stomachs. Same as 89% of the adult birds. So you can, you can learn more about, about this on the website, albatross, the But it just kind of highlights, you know, what some of the threats. I mean, seven worlds, one planet. People that haven't seen the BBC, beautiful program, David Attenborough. There's a very heartbreaking portion where there's an albatross chick, you know, gets blown out of the nest because climate change has made these southern storms so intense. This, yeah, just watch it. The the chick, you know, it's a whole drama thing and and the chick actually gets back to the nest. Thank God. I don't want to ruin it for you. I probably just did ruin it for you, but (laughs) it's just, you can watch it. Um, But it's an incredible, you know, sequence of events and and you're just like, it breaks your heart. It breaks your heart. So, you know, there you go. Those are the threats they're facing. Hopefully we'll get you fired up to fight for albatross because they amazing species to learn about Angie, the evolution it's going to be quick today. Not a ton because again, these ocean going species hard to find a lot of fossils. You know, a lot of them die at sea, you know, the bones, whatever, don't make it to the seabed or they're probably on the seabed somewhere. But anyways, what we do know is we go back again, the akiop Achaeopto- talk, archaeopteryx very first bird this dates back 150 million years
1: oh and, yeah archaeopteryx yeah. i think it's archaeopteryx i could be wrong but yeah there you go uh, it's oh, one yeah, of my boys beautiful. favorites uh, it's highlighted in all the dino books
0: yeah so that's the first bird right so that's the first transition mm-hmm. from dinosaur to bird dates back 150 million years we do the first fossils of an albatross like bird dates back about 55 million years Then we do know the great albatrosses split off from the North Pacific albatross roughly 15 million years ago, and that split into the, who knows, 22 species we have today. 14, 22, 24, who knows? That many species (laughs) we have today. That's about all I could find on evolution. There wasn't a a ton
1: there. Sure. They've been been with us for a while. They've been perfecting their incredible soaring gliding adaptations uh, and navigation mm-hmm. for fifty five million years so yeah that's, it's crazy' it's, that's wow. another reason why they 're worth saving it's just incredible yeah
0: yeah, millions and millions of years now the albatross order is procellar forms you have four families you have the albatross the petrels the shearwaters, waters the storm petrels okay so the albatross is part of that all are pelagic so there's a a a word meaning they feed in the open open ocean now the family of of albatross is diomidae and again we talked Mm -hmm. about the debate so we're going to go with 22 species versus you know that that's what we're going to agree upon in the podcast it could change next week who knows within that family there's four genera so you have the great albatross the molly which i think is hilarious the north pacific albatross And the Sooty albatross. Now, it's interesting that the North Pacific and the Great Albatross are sister taxon, while the Mm -hmm. Sooties and the Molly Hawks are more closely related. Okay. So there's a little bit of their evolution.
1: Yeah, Chris. When I was researching these guys, of course, I focused a lot on the Great Albatrosses and the Wandering Albatross. But but I fell in love with the Molly Mox because my sister's name is Molly. And so I think I have a new... Mm -hmm. Cute nickname for her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she but she it makes you mad. Yeah. <laughs> the Bolymok look. Yeah. yeah. Exactly.
1: Right. Exactly. Now,
0: within the Great Albatross, there's six or seven species. Again, depends on who you talk to. So you have the Southern Royal albatross, the Northern Royal Albatross, the Wanderings, the Antip Antipodean, uh, which reminds me. This is an episode that always gets lost, but go back to it's episode 48, I think. My interview with Theo Van Noort it is still one of my f- fascinating interviews because this was the Million Dollar Mouse project with the Antipodes Island, south of New Zealand, where he went and he did it, He was looking at insects and classifying insects. But long story short, trying to eradicate the mice on the island because the mice were killing all the birds, which includes the albatross that mate and have chicks there. So mm-hmm. fascinating interview that goes back and talks about all the things that they did in the antipodes. I'll try to link that in the show notes. If I remember, oh, I will. And you can go. It's a fascinating interview for, for what they did down there. All right. Then you have the Gibsons albatross, Tristan in Amsterdam. Now the wandering albatross that Angie said, Scientific name is Diomedia exulons. There you go. I'm going to go with it. Move on. That sounds great. All right. (laughs) Sure. Thumbs up. (laughs) Thumbs up for me. All right.
1: And let's keep moving
0: Angie. (laughs) All right. Yeah, let's move on. Angie. Okay. So we've done the largest bird bird. We, We did the largest, I think, wingspan bird, if you remember. I don't, you know, one of them. Yeah, I think... The host eagle from New Zealand was still the biggest. I just went and looked for the largest flying animal ever.
1: Oh, that we fun. found
0: evidence on because this is the largest wingspan bird. So I know we did the elephant bird, you know, with the moa being, you know, dethroned. The elephant bird was always an awesome one from Madagascar. So this one, I, there's no way, you know, this one, there's none. I don't well, know, maybe.
1: Uh... <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Probably not because I don't do these deep dives into large creatures. That's your jam. But Chris, I did read about the Pelagornis, which is a prehistoric seabird that had a beak full of teeth-like spikes and its wingspan was at least 17 feet Okay, okay, that's the largest
0: maybe seabird. There you go. Okay, okay
1: so do a little homework. You know, well, I mean, I think I, th- I think
0: our little local local dinosaur expert who uh, resides in your house might know this, oh, but it is maybe, maybe, maybe Quetzalcoatlus.
1: Chris, oh my gosh, of course, and I don't think you're saying it right. It's Quetzalcoatlus. <laughs> Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I didn't know we were like going into flying dinosaurs. I was sticking more on the seabird train, but you know, uh, but yeah, this that this is a big one. This is a huge one. Uh, it's first of all, it's weight. They say it's it was about about five hundred pounds. Yes, two hundred fifty kilograms. Like huge. Which is oh I'm at my mom's and some Canadian geese uh, just flew by. So Yeah, there you go. There, there's there's long lost sign. relatives. Yeah, yeah. Uh but uh well yeah, no, their wingspan, Quetzalcoatlus, uh estimated to be uh thirty-five feet. Thirty-five yes. feet. Thirty-five feet. I had to say that three times, so I don't even know how long that is. That's like Bipel so they stand
0: ten feet, <laughs> like three meters. It's this thing's in, insane. If I saw it, you would just die. I'd just fall over dead. Yeah, in shock. for like, sure. This wow. Thing, this thing would eat us no problem. It's like a like dragon huge... on uh, yeah, Game of Thrones.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah geez.
0: Yeah. Went extinct uh, tens of millions of years ago. So, but I had to look Quite it up. the largest? Nice.
1: I, I can't wait to tell Xander. Right.
0: Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So, shout out to Xander. Okay. Some fun facts. Can live over 50 years. These birds live a long time.
1: Yeah, Chris. On average, albatross live up to 50 years. And there was a Lysayan albatross that's named Wisdom. I love that. That was mm-hmm. tagged or ringed back in 1956 as a, a mature adult and hatched a chick in 2017. So that makes her at least 66 years old. Wow. And wow. Then there's a wandering albatross, nicknamed Grandma, who lived over 60 years in New Zealand. So, and, but with that, they don't become sexually mature, like males don't breed until they're about 10, anywhere from 6 to 10, depending on this specific species. So when we think of generation intervals and life cycles and when these populations that are critically endangered or vulnerable or threatened, how long it's going to take them to bounce back they're not and they don't even just a little quick spoiler alert most species don't breed every year a lot of them breed every other year because there's such an investment in the one egg that they lay in their Mm -hmm. their chick in rearing it so yeah i just i had no idea i i don't know i if you would have asked me before this podcast because i clearly was not an albatross uh enthusiast unfortunately i am now i'm uh but That uh, I I probably would have thought like 10 years or something or, you know, it's like a seagull almost or something. Mm -hmm. I don't, so just, just incredible. And, uh, but it makes sense that they need that long to live and learn all their different amazing flight navigation tactics and hunting Mm -hmm. tactics. And uh, when we talk to more about their, uh, their courtship behaviors is is it takes them a while to actually learn how to do the dances and the songs. So it yes. it all makes sense but it is really unique and really incredible yeah. for uh for a seabird
0: i just i was just thinking like navig you're right navigation like to learn the navigation because they come back to the same nesting sites i mean we're getting ahead to repro but you know they do come back to those same nesting sites you know every two years yeah. and the males and females i uh, we're we're talking repro but it's fine the males and females separate, but they mate for life, right? So these, they come back to the same site to find each other, to mate, Mm -hmm. raise their Mm -hmm. chick, and then they go separate ways and fly for thousands of kilometers or miles, and then come back. Like, oh, birds blow me away. Like, every time we do a bird, it's just every single species.
1: I know. it's They're just so, it's just so cool. And I I took a bird biology class many moons ago, and I think I was just itching and scratching to work with ungulates and megavertebrates, and so... The bird biology class—I I don't think I fully embraced it. And now, now that I'm older and wiser, I'm like, mm-hmm. "Where is that book? Do I still have that book? Or maybe I can take a Coursera class?" Yeah, uh, because yeah, it's just—they're just incredible. And the albatross is are amazing. No, ex- they're exceptional. Exceptional.
0: Yeah, you—you got to love birds. You know, you have to fall in love with these animals. They're just fascinating and one of the things that really blew me away reading about albatrosses is, is their flight now these birds do not have powered flight like thinking of the bald eagle you know or we did the robin a few weeks ago those birds powered flight meaning they need to flap their wings to, to get hummingbird and fly right Mm-hmm. Oh god! There you go. Perfect. There you go. Hummingbird. You, you, that's why you're a great podcast partner because that's the ultimate powered flight, right? A little helicopter, you know, flapping those wings a thousand times or hundreds of times a second. So albatrosses are great gliders, and mm-hmm. it's so crazy that they spend less energy gliding than they do sitting on a nest. Like they burn yes, more energy. Yes, or, or on landing. The nest than they do mm-hmm. when they glide.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah I watched hilarious. a lot of I watched a lot of videos of them landing. They're not like very good at that. They could take a few lessons from an aircraft for the most part. Uh yeah, it's it's not super pretty. No,
0: <laughs> but, no, 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 no. But that's
1: okay. When this is when well, this is more when they're landing, I guess, yeah, on water or in or on land. But yeah, it was these videos were funny. Uh yeah, Chris, it's just so incredible to the point where they don't flap their wings to generate this power in that they actually have a sheet of tendons near their shoulder that locks it in place when the wings are fully extended so they can be outstretched and just soar with no muscle expenditure. Mm -hmm. And Mm then they just just soar, and they don't need to flap. They don't want to flap, and therefore they don't flap. And when they do flap to kind of land, it is kind of hilarious. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, yeah it's they, just, that's when they use a lot of energy, yeah. Yeah, and I I kind of did some dorking out which didn't really work out in my favor, but I tried to dork out about the different types of soaring that they do and the way that the albatross can cover these thousands of kilometers in just days is by two techniques called dynamic soaring and slope soaring. And so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. slope soaring is basically where they use rising air on the windward side of waves. So they like where I, I don't want to be in a, a storm on Lake Michigan or near, near yeah, an no, ocean. Yeah, it's yeah, super yeah. windy. That's just, uh, I have a, I have a very healthy fear of uh, big ocean wave storm things, probably from growing up on Lake Michigan. And we can get some pretty gnarly weather here, but the albatross, they love wind and they love waves and they actually use this slope soaring to, help them glide and move up and down these patches and pockets of air mass. And Chris, the other type is this dynamic soaring, which involves albatross going into the wind or windward and and ascending up the the air currents. Mm -hmm. And they go up, 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 high, high up. And then they basically will turn into the wind and then ride the the wind or the go head leeward yeah. with the wind down, 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 basically until they almost hit the water and then they will curve back. And so they basically travel in a zigzag pattern, mm-hmm. but they of course do their extremely amazing navigation skills. They know the zigzag pattern. They're heading in the way that they want to tra- end up going. And because of this up and down, uh, yeah, they basically, like you said, have a net energy of expenditure of pretty much zero. Uh, and, they, and they can yeah, just do that up and down pattern. And these are this is the pattern that a lot of the aerospace engineers are trying to study and learn. Uh, because right now, like a drone would just go from point A to point B in a straight line, right? That's how it wants to get mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm, That's what mm-hmm. theoretically makes sense to us humans and our human brains. But there's a lot. Right potentially a lot more efficient ways to travel that aren't as intuitive to us smart humans, right? See, we have a lot to learn from these guys.
0: Oh, I've seen some of the pictures too of them, like, you know, in their turns, their wings are, are up and up and down, but their bodies are, you know, oh, it's incredible. To, to, to see, I mean, they just, mm-hmm. oh, their their acrobatics are, are amazing. You know, some of the things they, they can predict weather patterns in the Southern hemisphere, when they fly North from the colonies, they go clockwise. And then when they fly South, they go counterclockwise. So some of that intelligence you talked about learning their heart rates are almost at resting while they're gliding. There's cause there's no energy. Yeah. (laughs)
1: So
0: so that's how they can just live at sea. You know, they just, you know, if there, I even read that they think they might sleep while they fly or glide, which there's no evidence of that, but they think like, how do they fly or yeah, how do they sleep and cover these distances? So yeah. Yeah. Uh, Some other facts, you know, one, one of the things they do is, like other seabirds, is they excrete a lot of salts. They have a salt gland, like their nasal gland at the base of the bill above their eyes, so they excrete salt. Do you remember the other species that did this? It, it totally brought back memories of this other one.
1: Well, Chris, there's several species that do it. I think uh, I think some species of penguins, but yeah, uh, the more the most recent one we talked about was. Was on the islands where I hoped to be spending my tenth anniversary. Yes. So, be. uh, marine iguanas. Yeah,
0: remember they'd like that snot or whatever they'd come out and.
1: Oh yeah, they had like a salty yeah, crust yeah. and yeah, 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 yeah. That's awesome.
0: I oh, uh, I cannot wait now, to you guys go and take pictures and send videos. Of you and John and seeing the marine iguanas and the tortoises and all the great things there. So I know. We've got, got a couple years you. to
1: save up. So mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> better, but Chris, better. talking about talking about their awesome bills and how they can excrete mm-hmm. salt. Yes. What I found to be completely fascinating was the sense of smell. Uh, seabirds in general aren't mm-hmm. known to have this great sense of smell, like a shark or a dog or something like that. But uh, albatross. Rely on their scent to help them track down prey, and we'll talk about all the different types of food that they eat. But some evidence suggests that albatross uh, can follow a trail or a smell uh, up to twelve miles. Wow! So wow. they can smell it, and then they, you know, they're soaring in a zigzag pattern. Or, uh, tr- I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, that does. Yeah. How is that even? It's just insane and yeah, uh yeah. but yeah i mean but when they're out in the open ocean it's a really important asset to have when you're hunting in these open oceans right i mean you mm-hmm, you, you need mm-hmm. all the help all the help you can get
0: well i mean they eat carrion right so if there's like mm-hmm, a right whale carcass exactly mm-hmm, which is crazy mm-hmm. okay okay wow that's interesting and they you know i mean they feed primarily on fish squid i mean
1: i saw krill uh crabs yeah chris i watched a, a video i think it was bbc blue ocean or something of them uh hunting krill during these big um, nutrient exchanges with the cold and the hot water where a lot of krill right. come up towards the surface and there's just you know hundreds of albatross just having them that's crazy breakfast buffet yeah
0: Oh God, that'd be so amazing. That would be so amazing to see. That would be just, uh, yeah, all my bucket list of animals to see. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, before we jump to some cool behavior, uh, just really quick predators, almost none you know, on these nesting islands. Like I said, go listen to Theo Van Nort's interview. Mice, some of these introduced species rats can be a problem with chicks, you know, on some of these remote islands. But as adults, Almost none except maybe sharks while they're floating on the surface, you know, a shark may come up and and nab them, but I'm sure that's kind of rare. I don't know. They just, there's not a lot of incidents of predation.
1: Yeah, Chris, for the adults, uh, but being a chick is tough uh, and there's estimates out there that between 15 and 65% of albatrosses that actually fledge will survive to breed life is hard on the open ocean and there's a lot to learn and then of course too when there's some human influences with long lines and other things like that so uh yeah it's um so it can be a tough world out there for the little albatrosses
0: yeah i imagine i imagine especially learning i mean what so you know we're talking about navigation things earlier what are some of the other amazing things these animals do
1: Well, Chris, I thought it was really interesting that albatross don't necessarily migrate, but they do undertake a lot of these long flight patterns and the southern hemisphere species that will make, they'll do like circumpolar trip. And among this circumnavigation and the southern oceans, uh, one tag bird was recorded covering more than 12,000 kilometers or 75,000 miles in one Year, in that's one insane. That's so insane. That's so crazy. In one year, so just just yeah, going nuts. around, just go. I mean that, and so I. It's just uh, incredible, and that's where I have to give a big shout out to BirdLife International, and we'll talk about them a little bit more at the end of the podcast because they've been working on satellite tracking records for all 22 species of albatross. They utilize this program called Seabird Tracking Database, and so they're learning a lot about just how all the various species do things a little bit differently and have different ranges uh depending on where they live and how they dis- and how they disperse after their breeding season so it is mm-hmm. it is teaching scientists a lot about these birds that we just don't really ever see unless you're, you know, unless unless you are a fisherman or somebody who spends a lot of time, a sailor, somebody that spends a lot of time out at sea. Uh, and so we just know that, as you mentioned, they spend their days alone gliding up and down the windy currents and they need the wind and that helps them move from point A to point B. And why they go from point A to point B, researchers don't fully understand uh, except for to look for food, Right. And so they live this life out at sea, mostly alone, unless there's a big, unless there's a bigger feeding frenzy uh, due to like a, a krill explosion or something like that. But in general, they're, they're by themselves, solitary, but then a switch happens, Chris, and then albatross become colonial, and they get together and nest on these isolated islands where there can often be hundreds of them coming together and practicing breeding rituals and hopefully laying an egg to hatch one chick depending on on their age. And so these breeding colonies where they land and spend a lot of time breeding and rearing chicks is the same island that they were born on. So there's an innate reason for them to come back to their breeding grounds. And we see that in a lot of species. Which is insane. I'm sorry. Right. It's nuts. Yeah. I can't even get like, That's crazy. I mean, I can't even get around the city without getting lost half the time <laughs> without my GPS. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The worst was Atlanta. Oh, I spent an internship at Zoo Atlanta and so I only lived there for 3 months. I did have a car. Yeah. I only drove to the zoo and back. I tried not to drive anywhere else cuz traffic was pretty gnarly there even like 15 20 years ago. And but that city is not on a grid system at all. Like what? So everything well, is like Peachtree no, Peachtree Lane, Peachtree Court. Yeah. Roads go in circles, literally in circles. And so I mean, to Could this you day, imagine you, trying you to dro- navigate. No, without your no. Phone. If you drop me off like, in the literally. middle of the city without my phone, <laughs> I would just, <laughs> I would just sit down on the sidewalk and rock myself back and forth and cry. I mean, but now it's so then- crazy how
0: we depend on them.
1: All right and then I lived in Chicago for a long time and there at least in a, a grid system and so that yeah, that yeah, was yeah. very helpful you can tell by the the north south numbers on the streets where you are in theory and so that was that was pretty easy for me to understand how far it was from point a to point b well i and had to how know to get okay there, north ba- south east west
0: back in the day last century when <laughs> some of our listeners cannot relate to this some can when i was working in San Francisco in the pharmaceutical industry before I went to grad school and I had to know where all these doctors offices were and I remember having the big maps in my car like I had the thick book
1: Oh yeah Ram McNally <laughs> baby yeah. yes yes all this all the streets are one
0: way and so you get lost Oh and, San Francisco's oh. bad Okay New York
1: yeah New so York is po- pretty good yeah. but I, oh, God. I have the the other the other worst one I have to give a shout out to, I mean, I love Boston. I love downtown Boston. It's yeah. such a charming city. All the history. It's a walking yeah. city, especially compared to uh, the bigger cities, Chicago, New York, they've spent time in. Uh-huh. but even your gps will blow up in boston it, it, it the city <laughs> there's no grid it is just these tiny streets and it's way better to walk than drive for sure if you're in yeah, boston yeah. uh but yeah i mean the gps just finally is like i don't know i don't know yeah. like rerouting rerouted like little just rerouting, the wheel spins yeah. just rerouting rerouting so oh, yes goodness. so this is why another reason why albatross are amazing because are they so come amazing. back are so amazing they're yeah. If they come back. Thousands, I mean, after thousands of s- kilometers, Thou- yeah. I'm going to talk about a species towards the end of the podcast called a Chatham mm-hmm. albatross, and they basically land on this small little rock, um, south in South <laughs> New Zealand, called. And so, yeah. anyways, but how they do that, I will I will probably never know. But it's fantastic yeah. because when they do land on these uh colonial nesting sites that's where the magic happens that's where you can go to youtube and spend hours just watching some really cool documentaries ab- about their intricate mating dances oh yeah and yeah. so regardless of the species of albatross all of them have some form of dancing calling this this very intricate ritual of display to attract a mate and it includes Complex vocalizations, complex dances, both male and female do it. uh, So they dance together and researchers think the intricacy of it is really important for mate choice. Because as you mentioned earlier, Chris, when they finally do settle on a mate and it's not the first time that they, they just, they don't just pick a partner dance and then go home and breed not by any stretch of the imagination. So in fact, the young juvenile albatross are non-breeding, and they they will still migrate back to the colony during breeding season, and they basically just spend years, years practicing Mm -hmm. their moves, okay? And in fact, researchers call it almost um, a language that the young albatross have to learn how to read, and they use what is called trial and error learning to try to figure out this language or the syntax to perfect the dances. And researchers have uh, demonstrated that this language of love or the syntax is acquired more rapidly if their younger birds hang out with older birds. So I think that's super interesting because it relates to us humans where We all, when we're young and dating, we all like rely on what our peers are doing. Oh, Susie, you know, did you call him back? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. But really, you should be talking to your grandma or even your parents (laughs) or your mom and dad, which you of course don't want to talk to when you first start dating. But I think yeah. that we can learn a lot from them. And I know that both my mother and my grandmother and some of my my friends that have a lot more age and wisdom than I do have been super intelligent about the advice they've given me about some of the duds that I dated back in the day, you know, and and they knew right away. They're like, oh, no, no, girl, that is not the one.
0: So I'm imagining when John showed up in your life, he did this Dance right? What's this dance look like? You know, the, to win you over?
1: Yeah, he per, he perfected the dance. He was a, he was an old yeah, pro. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. He had yeah. Uh, he had, yeah, he had kissed a couple toads. So uh, <laughs> yeah, no. From a yeah. from a bird point of view, this dance is it's amazing. Uh, and so it basically includes bill fencing or billing, where they kind of gently touch each other's bills. Uh, mm-hmm. My favorite is sky pointing and sky calling where the bird stands on its tippy toes, stretches its neck and points its bill upwards. That's the sky point. And then the sky calling Mm -hmm. is where while it's doing this and spreading its wings, uh, it will point and vocalize or scream into the sky. So yeah, that last like honking is uh, so you can hear some of the the sky calling in that uh, Mm -hmm. in that audio, and then then of course the bill vibration or bill clacking, it's called back and forth to one another. Uh, We'll put some videos on YouTube. I just I just can't do it justice with uh, with how I'm describing Describing it it. uh, on the podcast. Yeah, but there's also a lot of posturing. And they a little preen, too, uh, and staring. And researchers think that there's about 10 to 12 different sequenced moves that they do uh, for several minutes in a row trying to figure out who's the right match. And, and then for reasons unknown to us why a female picks a male and then they get together, uh, when she does select him and he selects her, and then they, yeah, they mate for life, and so it is really yeah, important, and, and that's why it doesn't happen over like one season. It, it takes a while, uh, and it doesn't happen over one dance. That's for sure. It's it's pretty. Yeah, uh, he's uh there, they they you know they understand it. You gotta you go out, you gotta go on a, lots of dates right before you find the one. I I can I can yeah, definitely yeah. get behind that. Um, and what a male <laughs> yeah. will also do is he usually, <laughs> yeah. And so a male will usually prepare for this the more the more mature the male gets, the more he'll arrive to the breeding colony early so that's a good hint for you guys out there. get to the date early and he'll start preparing the nest to also theoretically attract the female and show show her that besides his dance moves and her dance moves that uh, he can provide a good home and so depending on the species of albatross, their nest are a little bit different. Some use grass, some use shrubs and soil and sticks and and, peat, um, and even feathers that are left there from penguins. So it really just depends on the different species. But Chris, what is unanimous across species of albatross is that they will lay one egg every two years, and the incubation will last around 70 to 80 days. uh, The longer incubation for the larger species of albatross. And both male and female participate in incubating the egg on the nest. So we got a a really good dad here and mom. And what will happen is they need to feed during this time. And so whoever isn't sitting on the nest will go out to see and feed and then they change places, but they may be gone for a couple days or things like that. And then and when the chick does hatch, it's semi-altricial, and it's brooded and guarded and protected for a couple weeks, pretty heavily by both parents, and that it will defend it and, of course, feed it by uh, regurgitation. So they go; one parent will go out and hunt and then feed it, and then vice versa. So really high parental investment until the the albatross chick is ready to fledge. Which in great albatrosses, like the wandering albatross, that can take up to 280 days. Uh, That's insane. Now in the smaller albatrosses, yeah, that's a long, long time. That's, I mean, that's why they can only do it every other year, right? And Mm -hmm, then uh, mm -hmm. now now in the smaller species, it's anywhere from 140 to 170 days. But yeah. And then after all of this, (laughs) after all of this, (laughs) these poor fledgings, a lot of them don't make it to, sexual maturity to reproduce again and yeah. sexual maturity for an albatross is on average five it's a six years in the wandering albatross mm-hmm. but often up to 10 years where they're act like a male can actually finally win over a female and then and breed so 10 years
0: yeah yeah it's that's why it's so devastating like it's you know that's why when we lose them it's really tough
1: yeah, when we talk about their conservation, why it's a long, long generation interval and a slow reproductive rate due to the due to the parental investment, and so it's an—they're not just going to bounce. on par back. with
0: elephants. I mean, almost on par with elephants. Sure, you know.
1: Well, yeah, a little bit quicker. It's incredible.
0: A little bit quicker, but yeah, still, still on par with the largest yeah. mammal on land, mammal on Earth. So you know, it's mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's these are critical animals that that need our help they absolutely need our help i mean looking at conservation just the great albatross southern royals are vulnerable northern royals are endangered the antipodean is vulnerable gibson's vulnerable the wandering is vulnerable the tristan albatross is critically endangered the amsterdam albatross is critically endangered so when you have these slow generation intervals these these populations are heading towards extinction you know and this isn't a bird we can bring back from the dead so again right. why plastics things that we keep talking about are so important to to combat now you did mention there's some amazing organizations that are working oh hard yes correct oh yeah.
1: Yeah, I'll start off just really quick. I want to give a shout out to BirdLife International. Phenomenal. Phenomenal website, www.birdlife.org. This group, we've talked about it on the podcast before. They're global, tons of partnerships, science-based, and they're working to conserve several species of birds, and they do it by using awesome conservation programs, rigorous science, uh, locals, and for albatrosses, BirdLife has satellite track 22 species of albatross. And then they're, they use that seabird tracking database, which can be found at seabirdtracking.org, which is a fun place to go play around and learn more. BirdLife International is just an incredible education resource. So like them on Facebook, check out their website. Uh, you can learn a lot more about albatrosses. That's where I learned a lot. And so I had to give them a huge shout out. focusing on a more local organization uh, and heading back to your old stomping grounds in New Zealand, Mm -hmm. I want to give a big shout out to the Chatham Islands Taikoe Trust Group. And this organization has several programs uh, that involve coastal restoration, protecting several endangered species in the area. But what I want to highlight is their albatross Translocation Program. And so the Chatham Islands Takoe Trust can be found at www.taiko.org.nz, and Crystal put it on our show notes. The Chatham's Island Trust understood the problem of the Chatham Albatross. So the Chatham Albatross is also known as the Chatham Mollyhawk, and it's a medium-sized black and white albatross that breeds only on the Pyramid. Which I don't know if you know about this, Chris. It's it's this really crazy large island rock that's yes shaped like a pyramid, off yeah, um, yeah. off the coast of New yeah off the coast of New Zealand, and this is the only mm-hmm. place where the Chatham albatross breeds. That's it. Okay, and it's a pretty small island, wow. and yeah. and very treacherous, which I'll talk about in a moment, but. Uh, researchers understood that these these Chatham albatrosses are declining. They're considered vulnerable by the IUCN. There's only estimated to be maybe 5,000 breeding pairs. And wow. this is the only, only
0: place spot. where they yeah. breed
1: and colonize. And so the Chatham's Island Tychoe Trust realized that this is potentially a crisis because of climate change, bad weather. I mean, if there's... Any natural vent that's really bad on that island, it could wipe out the entire species. And so the researchers with this group started translocating juveniles, not chicks. They have to be right before fledging from the Pyramid Rock to um, what is known as Main Chatham Island, which is about 50 kilometers north of the pyramid. And their hope is that the Chatham albatross will recolonize in this new area that's a little larger and more protective and it'll basically be like a backup population. So from 2014 to 2018, they've uh, relocated 300 chicks. And so it's so, I'll have you put the video on the show notes. It's First of all, these researchers are what give me hope. Remember earlier in the podcast, we were like, oh, this is so sad. How can we be hopeful? Yeah, yeah. Because I watch these researchers basically risk their life. They can only get out of this pyramid island because it's like a pyramid, mind you, in the middle of the yeah. ocean, uh, a few days a year and they go mm. and then it's like super treacherous and the birds are not happy with them and they're pretty aggressive yeah. and, and they grab up and uh, put in nice little like box carriers, these large, almost ready to fledge chicks, which are huge. They're probably like, I don't mm. know, 15 pounds at that point in time. And then they race them on by boat off uh, and head north towards the main Chatham Island. And mm-hmm. then once they get there, they put them on these cute little flower pot nests that they've uh, researched mm-hmm. that work really well to contain them. And they make their new nesting site as homey as possible by putting in, they put in fake parent decoys. So okay. uh, like duck decoys or whatever, or owl yeah. decoys. They put in... Uh, Adult looking Chatham albatross decoys, and they play vocalizations to mimic what the parents would sound like. Right. And uh, with the whole goal of when these re-lo- relocated albatrosses. Come to breed, they'll come back to the main Chatham Island and not to the Pyramid wow, okay. Rock. Okay, okay. And because, but because they, they're, their generational interval is so long, they're, um, they're waiting for them to come back. They haven't, they're not old enough yet. They're still out at sea maturing. That is a long and study.
0: <laughs> Imagine if you're it's the a f- grad student doing that study.
1: <laughs> I know. There's a 10 year
0: study for you. I know. That's it's cool that's, though. That's,
1: that's cool. what gave me yeah. such. A, a large amount of hope in that. Just watching these yeah. researchers and knowing how dedicated they are, uh, I, just a, a huge high five to the Chatham Islands yeah, Taiwai Trust. Yeah. And we'll uh, please like them on Facebook. Check out their videos, uh, especially for our New Zealand fans and Australian fans. They're right around the corner from you, and uh, it's just it's just awesome to know that there's conservation heroes out there. Fighting waves in the sea to to, to save the Chatham albatross. So thank you for that. And um, And some of the most remote places
0: on earth. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And some of the most remote
0: places on earth. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, just conservation tip this week, reduce your plastic period. We already talked about joining us for plastic free July, but you know, refuse your straws, please refuse plastic bags bring your, you know, your, your shopping bags, uh, Pip and I do every week. We don't take anything else. Uh, and if we, we forgot, we buy a new one, which we needed one anyways. So bring your bags. Once you get in the habit, it's easy. Reuse your water bottles, refuse plastic fork and knives. I mean, a lot of people in this COVID pandemic are, you know, to go or take away orders. Just say, please don't include any plastic cutlery. Refuse that. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: I just yeah. carry some in my, you know, in my purse. So I always have it.
0: Yeah. And don't buy balloons. Nice do not buy balloons. No, balloons definitely go out in the ocean and kill. They're not in style. Sea life. Anymore. They just do. They just do. All right. So what I asked earlier, were albatross good or bad signs for sailors in the day? During the age of sail, generally albatrosses were very good. They thought they would give them a blessing, especially when it came to wind. It was very bad to kill a seabird, especially an albatross. It was bad luck. It was very bad luck. Now, some sailors thought an albatross was actually the soul of an old sailor following them. So it had a bad juju or bad omen. But generally... The, but they still respected them. They wouldn't kill them or anything like that, because that was very bad. You wouldn't do that. But generally, albatrosses were seen as good luck in the ocean. So I go back to why aren't they in the Atlantic? Because I don't think sailors in the in the day were killing them for food or feathers or anything like that. So because that was a that was very bad luck to do that. Sure. So I just think yeah. there's something I got. We got to find out. We'll find out. We'll find out, we'll find out one day and come back and try to report but but that's it the albatross is good you can go uh read up on the rim of the ancient mariner Talks about the albatross and all the, the good old sea shanties back in the day. But
1: yeah, and don't forget if you're interested in reducing your plastic footprint or learning more about how to do that, join us, All Creatures Podcast, our team um, on the Plastic Eco Challenge July. And Chris will put a link in our show notes. And of course, follow us on social media and then you'll be bombarded with all these amazing updates. So mm-hmm, please check that out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Help us save the oceans. Thank you for listening. Share the this episode angie amazing we're coming back next week with the new species from the ocean so stay tuned
1: stay tuned thank you everyone
0: listen learn share
1: join the movement at allcreaturespod.com